experiential or hands-on learning is one of the most powerful instruments in education. Adults and children alike seem to learn better when they're able to, to see what it is that's being taught, when they're able to, to really get their hands on it. The preschool teacher, knowing this, came up with just a wonderful experiment to teach her pupils about the importance of hand washing. Very, very simple. She, she took a paper plate and put some water on the paper plate so that it was evenly distributed then put some pepper in the water to represent germs. And then she would have one of the students, as they all gathered around the paper plate, take their finger and put it into the solution and then remove it once more. And they would discover that there was pepper on the finger. Now, this is the part that's really exciting. She would have the students dip their finger first in soap and then they would put it onto the paper plate. And you know what happens, right? All the pepper flees to the other side of the plate. The student's able to pull their finger out, uncontaminated. So all of the students were able to behold the value of washing their hands. They were able to see a reality that was unseen. The lesson allowed the students to see a physical representation of what they could not see. And this is precisely what Jesus is doing when he heals the blind man in John chapter 9. He is using a parable, I'm sorry, he's using a physical healing as a parable about something spiritual. He's going to heal a blind man in order to teach us a valuable lesson. That spiritual blindness is far more devastating than physical blindness. And so I've summarized the main idea of John chapter 9. Spiritual blindness is far more devastating than physical blindness and only Jesus can give the gift of sight. And so the, the exhortation this morning is to see Jesus. That is, ask Him to give you sight so that you might worship Him as you ought. We'll walk through the text in uh, three simple steps. We'll consider the event or the miracle itself, the Pharisees' investigation, and then the judgment. Let's pray and we will begin our time together. Father, we gather because you are worthy. We gather to offer you songs of praise, to meet with you in prayer, and to hear from your word. We ask that you would speak to us now. Help us to hear your word. Help us to, by our hearing, see Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Look with me at John chapter 9 and verse 1. And he, that's Jesus, 
was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. Just right away, I I love Jesus sees this man, knows where he is, knows who he is, knows his story. He sees this man and he knows that he's been blind since birth. This prompts a discussion. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, before we turn to Jesus' answer, we, we need to point out that his disciples have at least two of their assumptions right. right? Suffering is the result of sin. They're right about that. And secondly, sometimes individual suffering is the result of personal sin. Right? There are plenty of examples of this throughout the scripture. Adam and Eve die. Miriam revolts against Moses and is stricken with leprosy. Korah rebels against Moses, just like Miriam, and is swallowed up in the earth. In Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu try to worship God the way that they want instead of the way that he's prescribed, and they are consumed by fire. Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark of God, and he dies. Ananias and Sapphira lie to God the Holy Spirit about how much they contributed, and they drop dead. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul warns us about taking the Lord's Supper in a manner that's unworthy. He says, it's for this reason that some of you have become sick and some of you have died. Even in our study through John, when we were looking at these seven signs, the healing of the man in chapter 5, the pool of Siloam, Jesus, after he heals him, says, don't sin any longer so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The implication is, is that his ailment, his disability was actually the result of some sin in his past. And so they're right in these two assumptions. But they're wrong because there's more to the story. Their perception is too, too narrow, too mechanical. The universe doesn't, doesn't work like that. They, they seem to have a similar theology to Job's friends. Right? Bad things, they think, don't happen to good people. And it's this misunderstanding that, that Jesus clears up. Look how he responds in verse 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus reminds us of something we must not forget when considering suffering, and that is that the link between personal sin and personal suffering is not absolute. That is to say, it's not always the case. There may not be a personal connection between sin and suffering. Indeed, there is always a cosmic connection. Indeed, we are born into a world of sin. And much suffering is the consequence of that fact alone. 
And so we have two truths here. Some suffering is due to personal sin. And at the same time, much suffering has nothing to do at all with personal sin. That's demonstrated, the latter of these principles is demonstrated in the life of of Christ chiefly, right? It's demonstrated in Job. He was a righteous man. He suffered even though he was righteous. And we have Jesus, the ultimate righteous person, without any sin. And he is betrayed by his friends, crucified on the cross. Jesus suffers for our sins, yes. He absorbs the wrath of God for all who will repent of sin and put their faith in him. He suffers for sins, but not his own personal sin. He's innocent. And so, not all suffering is the result of personal sin. And so, so what are we, what are we to, to do with this? Well, I think when we are suffering, we need to recognize that not all suffering is the result of something that we've done. We can't draw a straight line from this sin to to this circumstance. So it's not like I wake up in the morning and uh, I'm really angry and so I kick my dog and then I get in my car and I'm on my commute to work wherever I work and then I have a car accident and I go, okay, okay, what happened here? Okay, I I sinned, I shouldn't have kicked the dog and because I kicked the dog now, now I've had this terrible car accident. The calculus doesn't work like that. But what we ought to do When we have a circumstance in our lives that is negative, when we enter into suffering, is we ought to examine ourselves and look for sin. Our adversities are opportunities to examine ourselves and to ask, is there sin in my life that I need to repent of? Now this isn't an invitation to beat yourself up. I think this is a temptation for for a lot of us is to go, well, these things in my life aren't going according to plan and and sometimes sometimes suffering is due to personal sin and so this is all my fault. You just just beat yourself up. That's, That's not the right response. The right response is to examine yourself, look for sin, and then repent of it and entrust yourself to God. Trust that he is acting rightly and justly, that he is for your good. Believing that no matter what the circumstance is, that he is sovereign over it. There's something else in this text too that I think ought to jump out at us. It's that this man is born blind, yes, because he's born into a sinful world. But because of what Jesus says in in the second part of verse 3, you see that? so that God's works might be displayed in him. What this teaches us is hard. It teaches us that God not only allows suffering, but that he ordains it for his glory. Think about what this means. This man 
was blind from birth and didn't see a day in his life so that others might come to see who Jesus is. Think about what it means for you personally. It means that the most important thing that your life contributes to the universe is not your own comfort or pleasure, but how your life brings glory to God. This, so that God's works might be displayed in him. This shouts, the point of the universe is not you. It's the glory of God. And I think we, we have so much trouble with this because we have a very low view, a very low valuation of God's glory and a very high appreciation for our own comforts. So that when we encounter suffering, we go, why me? Instead of going, how might God glorify himself even in this? We continually ask the question, why, 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 instead of, ask, of reminding ourselves of who it is that has ordered all things. Instead of reminding ourselves of who God is. Reminding ourselves that he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He is worthy of our trust. This man was born blind so that God's works might be displayed in him. And indeed they would be. Jesus is the light of the world and he brings light to this man's eyes. Look with me at verse 6. After he said these things, he spit on the ground made some mud from saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went, washed, and came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, He's the one. And others were saying, No, but he just looks like him. And the man himself kept saying, I'm the one. So they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he? They asked. I don't know, he said. I, I love this. Uh, Jesus sees the man, and the text doesn't even have them engaging in any kind of conversation, right? Uh, Jesus sees this man. He and the disciples have this theological discussion about the theodicy of God. They show up, they, they engage him, and Jesus bends over, spits in the ground, and starts making mud pies. Right? This is something my kids do. Right, they go outside, they have their little book, Mud Pies and Other Recipes, and, and Jesus is down in the ground making mud, and he takes the mud, he puts it on the man's eyes and says, go to the pool at Siloam and wash. And the man, he does it. He went, he washed, and he came back seeing. And then all of his neighbors, those people that have known him his whole life, are awestruck by this miracle. They can't believe it. In fact, they find it more plausible that this is a lookalike. 
you know, a long-lost twin brother than it is that this man is actually healed. They're like, are you sure you're the blind man? You're not somebody else? Like, no, it's, it's me. It's really me. I was blind and I see. This man, Jesus, healed me. It's unbelievable. I do love that Jesus knew this man. You see it just in verse 1. He saw him. And he knows that he's going to give him his sight. This man born blind woke up on this day like it was any other day and sat begging. And yet Jesus had planned this day from before he was even born. This day was planned by God while he was being knit together in the womb. This blind man was knit for many things, one of them being receiving his sight on this day. He woke up thinking it was just going to be a normal day, but Jesus got up that morning knowing that he was going to give him his sight. Jesus sees this man broken in his blindness, sees all his failures, all his foibles, he sees all of his ugliness, and he moves towards him. He sees him. He gives him his sight. What a beautiful illustration for what happens to us, friends, when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ. There we are in our blindness and brokenness. Jesus sees us, all our failures, all the ugliness of our inner workings, sees our imperfections, sees our brokenness, and he comes to us and he gives us sight. Gives us faith in him. It is incredible. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, Jesus makes this same offer to you. If I can speak by way of metaphor, he has, he has taken mud, mud of the gospel, and put it on your eyes this morning. And what I mean by that is that he has put the substitutionary death and justifying resurrection before you. And you can choose to believe it, to follow the example of this man born blind, and to go and wash and come back seeing. You, you can obey his word and believe you can allow the mud to stay on your eyes and to harden and to make you even more blind than you already are. Jesus sees this man. He was knit for it. He was made for this particular day when he would receive his sight. And perhaps you, non-Christian, woke up this morning just like any other day. And yet maybe God has it in his heart to give you sight. The man receives his sight and it is incredible. It is unbelievable. It is stupendous and miraculous. This is a big deal. 
All of his friends are trying to figure out how this would be possible. They know that he didn't give himself the ability to see. They know it had to have happened from somebody else. They figure out it's this man, Jesus, who has been trumpeted as a great prophet. And so they take the man to the religious leaders. You know, they need a quote from the authorities, from the experts. You're the religious experts. A man born blind from birth now sees. Tell us, what does it mean? And so... Pharisees begin to investigate. Verse 13, they brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Notice this note from John. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a Sabbath. Then the Pharisees asked him again how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, he told them. I washed and I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Again, they asked the blind man, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's a prophet, he said. That little note about when Jesus does this healing being a Sabbath is really interesting. We've seen this before. Jesus could heal on any other day of the week at any time, and yet he chooses to perform this healing on the Sabbath. And we know that Jesus could have, with a simple word, said, see, and the man would see. But instead, he he makes those mud pies, spits in the dirt, makes mud, puts it on his eyes, and has him go and wash. Why? Now, there has been all kinds of discussion on this from commentators, And the answer is inconclusive. Here's my answer, though. I think it's clear. Jesus is provoking the Pharisees so that he might expose their blindness. He is (laughs) deliberately breaking the man-made rules that they have built around the Sabbath. So you, you have what God has said in his word And then you have Jewish oral tradition that has grown up around it. That's kind of become the the law of the land. And so uh, the Jews have lived according to this Mishnah, this oral tradition that says, we can't do X, Y, and Z on the Sabbath, even though God's word itself doesn't present, or yeah, doesn't say you can't do X, Y, and Z. The idea is that by putting kind of a fence around breaking the law, it will prevent people from ever getting close enough to the law to break it. It's kind of like uh, if there is a line to cross into sin, they're, they're putting a, a little buffer there of about 10 feet to keep, keep everyone away from the law, or away from the line. We want to make sure that we don't cross the line into sin. It's really, you know, it's got good motivations. Nevertheless, they have held up their law and their tradition as equivalent to the law of God. And so what Jesus does is he's deliberately breaking their law to expose to them that even though they are familiar with God's word, they aren't in total submission to it. In fact, they value their own traditions, their own feelings, and their own thoughts above what God's word says. And so he not only heals on the Sabbath to to break it, but he makes it clear that he's breaking their rules. That's what this bit about getting in the mud is about. 
The word used in John's gospel means to need, like one would need, like cakes. And this is one of the things that is expressly forbidden in the Mishnah, expressly forbidden by the Pharisees. It was considered work. And so Jesus bends over and he makes these mud pies, in my opinion, to say, I am working on the Sabbath, which is entirely consistent with God's law, not truly breaking the Sabbath, but it's inconsistent with that which you believe. He's, he's provoking them to eventually here expose their blindness. And so you ask, well, what about the spit? Is that really necessary? It seems gross. Again, all kinds of opinions on this. I'm going give to you, give you three real quick. One is that he's recreating. He's starting a new creation in the same way that God did in Genesis 2. Another suggestion is that there is li- spit was considered living water as was any water that moved. So if you went to a spring and the water had movement in it, it was considered living water. It was considered to have some kind of healing properties. And so he puts his living water into the mud and it contributes in some way uh, to, to helping this man be healed. Uh, my, my position, though, um, is this. One of the things we learned in Leviticus was that spit could make someone unclean. And I think that his spit is functioning in a similar way as he does when he's interacting with a leper. Let me try to explain it here. When Jesus touches a leper to cleanse him, Jesus doesn't become unclean. The leper becomes clean. And I think perhaps something similar is going on here. When Jesus performs an action that would, in the past, have made this man unclean, it would make this man unclean if someone else did it, it has the reverse effect of helping him to receive his sight. I'm not sure which of those interpretations is correct, You can make up your own mind. But the point is clear. Jesus has healed the once blind man. And the Pharisees are put off by it. They want to discredit Jesus by identifying him as a lawbreaker. They're saying he can't be from God because he breaks the law. And they want this man who he healed to confess that Jesus is indeed a sinner. He won't do that, though. The Pharisees, it seems, are really focused on that which is tertiary instead of that which is primary. A man who was born blind has come to them, and now he sees. And they don't say, that's amazing! How do you see? Let us talk to this guy. They say, we've heard about this Jesus before. We know what he's about. Bad egg. Character flaws. He can't be from God. He, he, did this on the, he healed you on the Sabbath? Sinner. See, despite the evidence before them, a blind man who sees, the Pharisees refuse to believe. They don't believe because they don't want to. Hear that? The Pharisees don't believe because they don't want to. I think it's a truism that people are not so much rational as they are rationalizing. Most of us like to act as if we are completely objective and you just show us the facts and we make the best decision. I think the truth is 
more often than not, people believe what they want and then come up with the justification for it. We believe what we want and then we go in search of arguments. But where the heart is, the argument follows. The Pharisees here have already made up their mind about Jesus. They don't want to believe in him. And so they go in in search of ways to discredit him, to justify their unbelief. Friend, where is your heart when considering the claims of Jesus? Is your posture one of, I want to believe, help my unbelief. Help me to see you. Or is it one of, I don't really want to believe in you, Jesus, because that means everything about my life has to change. Where your heart is, your arguments typically follow. And so I want to challenge you, if you are not a Christian, to put your heart in a posture of desiring to believe. To to pray to the Lord, God, I want to know what is true. I want to believe. Help my unbelief. And then consider the claims of Christ. Because blind men and blind women will see no sign. Just as the Pharisees here refuse to see the miracle before them. Despite the evidence, they will not see. Maybe you say, if the Lord would do a miracle in my life or in my household, then I would believe. But this text testifies to the contrary. The Pharisees have no interest in the truth. They do not want to believe it. They're not getting what they want out of the once blind man. And so they summon his parents, which is kind of part two of this interrogation, and and kind of funny to me. This is what happened to me in primary school when I got in trouble, which happened a little bit more frequently than one would like. There was time drawing on the tables, and one time we were playing Jurassic Park, and I got, I'm like a character actor, I got really into it, and dinosaurs, they bite people, and so I, I bit someone. And so my parents got called into the principal's office, and they got interviewed. You know, is this your son? Did you teach him to do this? That's what the Pharisees do here. Watch, watch. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe this about the man who was born blind and had received his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had received his sight. They asked him, Is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How then does he now see? We know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered. But we don't know how he now sees, and we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as the Messiah, that person would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. 
And so you can kind of see this interview. I think it's comical. Is this, are you sure this is your son? Yes. And he was, he was born blind, right? Um, yes. Do you know how, how he received his sight? And he, here's where it kind of is interesting. It's almost like they go, Jesus, um, he, he's of, we don't know, he's of age. Ask him yourself. Did you see that? The reason that they tell the Pharisees to ask their son is because, verse 22, they were afraid of the Jews. Since the Jews, and this is not all the Jews everywhere, this is the Pharisees, this is the religious leaders, had already agreed that if anyone confessed him, that's Jesus, as the Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. It's no small thing to be banned from the synagogue. It's to be an outsider in the community. And so, before they answer, they want to be very careful. They know that Jesus has done this. And they know Isaiah's prophecies, that when the Messiah comes, he will give sight to the blind. They might even believe it. And yet, their fear of man keeps them from confessing it. Friends, the temptation to accommodate yourself to culture so that you might have the approval of others is so strong. I mean, if you talk like a Christian, if you tell others about Jesus and what he's done, there is a good chance that you are going to be mocked and ridiculed, laughed at as a a bigot on the wrong side of history, maybe even canceled. And yet fear of man ought not drive us. Indeed, the Lord Jesus says to each of his people, as he said to Joshua, do not be terrified or discouraged, for I am with you. Be strong and courageous. Friends, we need not fear the world. We need not be troubled by its leaders. We ought not shake in our boots before Satan. Rather, we should sing The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. One little word shall fell him. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus is risen from the dead. Jesus rules and reigns. Jesus is returning. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This life is but a flicker. and We ought to leverage it to bring glory to God. Friends, Christianity is not for cowards. In fact, Jesus takes the cowardly among us. It makes us bold as lions. That's what he does for this once blind man. Contrast the cowardice of his parents with his courage as they summon him again in verse 24. So a second time they summoned the man who had been blind and told him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. That comment right there, they're not asking him to give give glory to God. What, What they're saying is, 
before God, own up and admit that this Jesus is a sinner. That's, that's what the thrust of their uh, give glory to God is here. They want him to identify Christ as a sinner. They want to paint Jesus as a fraud. Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether or not he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know. I was blind and now I see. Then they asked him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? I already told you, he said. And you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? They ridicule him. You're that man's disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but this man, we don't know where he's from. This is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. You were born entirely in sin, they replied. And you are trying to teach us? And they threw him out. The Pharisees, in their blindness, refusing to see the truth of the situation, don't engage with the man's arguments, but instead they shout him down. They say, you, a blind man born in sin, would try to teach us, the ones who really see, and they cast him from the synagogue. I, I just, I love this man's courage. It's pluck. And they're asking him a, a barrage of theological questions. And he says, you know, I, don't, I don't know the answer to all your questions. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. What a wonderful lesson for us. We don't have to know everything to know some things. We don't have to know every answer to every question that someone might ask us in our evangelism. Because we do know some things. We do know one thing. Christ Jesus is crucified for sinners. He's risen from the dead. He's promised to return. Might not have all the answers in our evangelism, but, but one thing, if you're a Christian, you do know. I was blind, but now I see. Jesus made me see. Friends, do not shrink back from the evangelistic task because of concern over not being able to answer every question that might arise. Instead, be bold as this man is. Worry not of ridicule or of being cast out of your social circles, but instead aim to please the God who has given you your sight. The light of the world 
blinds the eyes of the Pharisees. It gives sight to this man. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out. And when he found him, he asked, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He asked. Jesus answered, You have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. I believe, Lord, he said. And he worshipped him. This guy is a walking miracle. And yet Jesus seeks him out again. Because this man needs something more than just his physical sight. The man needs Jesus himself. This is incredible. Sometimes what we perceive to be our greatest needs are nowhere even close. The man's need to see spiritually, to see who Jesus is and to believe in him, far outweighs his physical blindness. Jesus heals him physically, then he helps him to see spiritually. Throughout the text, this man who starts out blind sees more clearly, more clearly, more clearly until he is bowed down before Christ in worship. And the Pharisees are more blind, more blind, more hardened. They can't see at all. So it prompts this comment from Jesus in verse 39. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we aren't blind, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. The same light that gives sight to some blinds others. Jesus is revealing himself. And the result is the blind man's faith. And the Pharisees' further hardening of themselves I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will become blind. You see what Jesus is saying? Those who are broken and who understand their need of help, their need of a Savior, oh, they will see. They will receive my help. Came not to call the righteous but sinners. But those who think they see, they are truly blind. 
And they ask him, do you think we're blind? And in, he has this, it's, it's kind of cryptic. I think it was a little hard to untangle in verse 41. If you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But because you say, we see, your sin remains. I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's saying, if you were blind, blind in the sense of understanding your need for me, in the sense that Jesus is using the word, you wouldn't have sin because you would be united to me in faith. You would be seeing. But because you think you see and you rely on yourself, content in your blindness, your sin remains. Jesus' teaching here is consistent with John three sixteen through 19. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. Friends, we are blind when we are apart from Christ. We are blind because we do not want to see the light. Apart from God's gracious gift of faith, we all act like cockroaches when a light is flicked on. We scurry across the floor and look for more darkness. It exposes us. We hate the light and we flee. We refuse to confess our works of darkness. We don't want to repent of our rebellion against God. We don't want to submit to his word. We don't want to give ourselves over to living according to his rules. And you see, this blindness doesn't diminish our guilt before God. Friends, it is our guilt. Our works are evil. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The Pharisees do not see because they do not want to. Where your heart is, your arguments will follow. Jesus is showing us all in this text that there is blindness and then there is blindness. There's a blindness of robs us, that robs us of physical sight and there is a blindness that robs us of eternal life. And what we ought to see is that spiritual blindness is far more devastating than physical blindness. And the whole thrust of John's gospel, he tells us in chapter 20, is that we would believe. That's why he writes. Friends, this text should have you making a decision about Jesus. Will you come into the light and see him for who he is and worship 
Or do you think you see already? And walk yourself further under the right wrath and judgment of God. Friends, Jesus makes the blind to see. Come to him and ask for the eyes of faith. Let's pray. God, your grace gives to us the opposite of what we deserve. All of us are sinners. All of us had preferred darkness to the light. But you saw us. You knit us together in the womb. You planned our days. You came to us. You gave us our sight. Amazing grace saved a bunch of wretches like us. We were blind, but now we see. We see our sins paid for with the blood of Jesus. We see the wrath that ought to have been ours poured out on the head of Christ. We see that he is risen again. We see that through him everything lives and moves and has its being. We see that we were made to have relationship with you through Christ our Lord. We praise you. We thank you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.